Good morning. God is good. I have a word for you. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Workman needs not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Open the word of truth this morning and stand up, if you will, for the reading. We're going to look at a passage, brief passage in Romans chapter 8 that reflects the songs we just sang. It's where the songs come from. Romans chapter 8. You know what the best thing about Romans chapter 8 is? It comes after Romans 7. Now, that's funny, but, but it's actually very, very important. In Romans 7, Paul is talking about his struggle in a Christian life, his struggle with sin. And he says, that which I would do, I do not do, and that which I find myself doing is what I do not want to do. I said it something like that. And he says, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Now, compare that to Romans 8 where he reads in verse, we'll look at verse 31 and, and the paragraph. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him generously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If it is God who justifies... Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is now at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake you are, we are being killed in the day all, all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, not anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Is that a powerful passage? You can sit down. Powerful passage. But it's almost the opposite of what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about a phenomenon called putting God in a box. Putting God in a box. One of the, one of the little expressions we just read was that height nor depth nor length nor width, right? You can't measure God in those ways. Those are the dimensions of a box. Follow, follow along with me if you want in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says something very similar. We're looking at chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in you, in your hearts, through faith that you 
being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. But God cannot be measured by height, length, width, and depth. That's a box. That's a box. And what people do, it's confusing. I want to point it to this thing. I'm supposed to point back that way and then look and see if it worked. There we go. God is huge. He's huge. You know, my two favorite attributes of God, it's not omniscience or omnipresence. God is nice and he's huge. That's in my systematic theology that there's a chapter on God is nice and God is huge. And you know what a great combination is? A huge, nice God. That's a great combination, am I right? God is so huge, so beyond our imagination that it's amazing what we do when we think about putting him in a box. There's the verse we just read, so I'm gonna get back to that. And what, what does this mean to put God in a box? Let me try to give you some examples of things that people say or think that illustrate their view of God being in a box, stuck in a box that they have designed and built to push God into it. Maybe some of these you relate to, some of you, some of you, some of them you might not. Do you tell yourself these things? It's wrong, but I'm just going to be defeated fighting it, so why bother? This is the person who has a habitual sin or a weakness of some kind, and he's defeatist. He says, I'm not even going to bother to fight it off because I know it's just going to, it's just, it, I'm in shackles. See, he doesn't realize that Christ can break the shackles. Just because he is shackled doesn't mean Christ is. How about this one? He's heard the gospel over and over again for 20 years now, so if he hasn't believed by now, he never will. You don't know what God's got going in that person's life when you say that. God could have all kinds of things going on in his life that he didn't bother to tell you. You have no authority or knowledge or experience or justification for saying something like that. God's works in mysterious ways, right? We're going to talk more about that. That's putting God in a box. Here's another one. This is my cross, I better accept it. This is my cross, I better accept it. This is where you have a, let's say some sort of burden, burden that you're carrying. Maybe there's, there's a problem in the family, maybe there's a health problem, problem at work. And rather than praying to God and asking for help and asking for him to solve the problem, you just say, well, this is my cross. I got to bear it. Bear my cross. Woe is me. Life goes on. That's not Christianity. That's Stoicism. I promised a couple of Greek words, big words, you know, for, for Mark. I think I owe him a dollar. I, I guess prayer is worth a shot. It can't hurt. This is when, when the doctor says you got in something incurable. And you think, oh, well, prayer's worth a shot, couldn't hurt. You want to know what incurable means? Incurable means the person talking to you that's telling you you're incurable, 
can't cure you. That's all it means. It means the person calling you incurable is admitting that he can't cure you. It, does, it doesn't limit God. Incurable does not limit God. I just need to accept this is who I am and all I'm going to be. This is a person who puts God in a box because they think that their, their life has gone in a certain way and it's just going to keep on going that way and, and that's all there is to it. They're in some kind of rut, some kind of bunny trail, some kind of road to nowhere. And they just figure, well, you know, that's just the way it is. This is my lot in life. No, it's not. So what does it mean to put, to put God in a box? What does it actually mean to do that? Well, there's four symptoms or, or things that, that cause it or illustrate it or, or, or consist of what it consists of. And here's the first one. We think we know all God is doing. We think that we know all God is doing. We said in the opposite. We don't think God is doing anything that he hasn't told us about. Think about the arrogance of that statement. We don't know all the things God is doing, I promise you. He's got his finger in things all over the place and he doesn't always have to check with you and tell you what his status report is. You know, but, but in case you think, you know, maybe I'm the only one with this problem, <laughs> or maybe some of you are the only ones with this problem, let's look at some of the Bible stories that we know it so clearly and so well. Elijah. Have you heard of Elijah? Oh, yeah. He put God in a box the day after he defeated the prophets of Baal and brought fire down from heaven. He brings fire down from heaven and, and defeats the prophets of Baal, and the very next day he puts God in a box. He gets a threat letter, a nasty gram from Jezebel. Says here, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he'd killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by, by this time tomorrow. He, should have just, he shouldn't have been sweating that one at all, right? The God, the God of Israel was on his side. He was in the hands of the living God. But what does he do? Elijah was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. I love that, lodged in it. It sort of sounds permanent, doesn't it? Like he brought a dresser in there, maybe a hammock. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, now in the, in the Randy Broberg Bible, you get tone of voice when God talks. So here's how this one reads. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and, came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? What was he doing there? What was he hiding in a cave for? That was a legitimate question. What are you doing there? Elijah thinks he knows everything that's going on, that what God's got going on, and he thinks God's not handling it very well, actually, and wants to inform God of that opinion. He said, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and Lord, I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. 
What did God say in the answer? I've got 7,000 prophets who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Just because you don't know them doesn't mean they're not out there. You see, Elijah thought that he knew everything God had going on. Somehow he overlooked 7,000 people. That was a big mistake. So heavy truth number one. When I was in high school, I went to a Christian high school, and sometimes we'd sit around, and one of the guys said, he called him, he said we were sharing heavy spiritual truths. And then it evolved into HSTs. We shared HSTs with each other. Heavy truth number one. God is doing many things of which you're unaware. God is doing many things of which you're unaware. So imagine, if you will, you're on an airplane. And you sit next to this person, and you know, you're in the aisle, and they're in the middle seat. And you think, well, we're, going all, we're flying all the way to New York. This is going to be a long flight. You know, so you introduce yourself to the person. And you start witnessing to them. And they accept Christ as their Savior on the airplane. That could happen, right? Think about all the things that would have to happen for that to happen. You know, you, you're on the same flight. You're, on the, you're in the seat next to them. It's not a night flight when you're sleeping, when everybody puts blindfolds on or something like that. It's a flight that where the person actually wants to talk to you. He's receptive to the gospel. God had to orchestrate a lot of stuff for just for you to sit on a plane next to somebody, right? That's right. You only got one thing to do, witness. God's got to orchestrate the whole plan to get everybody together in the right place at the right time. You know, furthermore, you don't know what God's been doing in that guy's heart. What if he was coming back from a funeral and he was thinking about life and death and eternity? What if he, what if he had just had a confrontation with his spouse and he thought that he was worthless or something like that? And somehow he's going through something. There's no way the guy in the middle seat is going to tell you all that. But God knows it, but you don't. See that? That God does all kinds of things that you're unaware of. First, there's some verses for that. As it is written, what, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. No eye has seen nor ear heard, or mind man imagined. What he's saying here is God has a plan for you that's really perfect for you, but it's pretty complicated too. And it's designed specifically for you. It's not a generic off-the-shelf plan. It's custom, tailor-made, fit to order. Made to spec. 1 Corinthians, Ephesians 3.20 now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. We read that verse. What do I have a telescope and a microscope there? They're illustrations. You put a microscope in front of somebody and you say, look what's on this slide. And you're looking in there, oh my goodness, those creepy looking things. There's like this whole world of microscopic stuff going on that you don't see at all. You walk around oblivious to the microscopic world, don't you? Then you, you think you know the stars, you know the Big Dipper and the North Star and things like that, but you 
don't know all the stuff, you don't see all the stuff that you can only see with a telescope. Then we put a Hubble telescope in, 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 in orbit, and we're seeing all kinds of stuff about the universe now that you never, we never would have seen before. So because you don't see it happening, does that mean it's not happening? Because you don't, you don't pay attention to the microscopic world or the world far away, does that mean they don't exist and there's not a lot of stuff going on? In the same way, God is working all around you, in you, with you, with, your, with other people. He's present in this place, just as true as the microscopic things are in this room, too. Don't get the heebie-jeebies about that, by the way. What it means to put a God in the box. So what was the first one? The first heavy truth was God is doing things that you are unaware of. Actually, I, I moved it so the proposition was not at the end, of which you were unaware. Try to do the proper grammar for you guys. Number two, we think we know all God is capable of doing. This is similar to the first one, but it's different. The first one was you assume that you know everything God's actually doing. Now you're assuming that you know what he's capable of doing. You're making your own personal assessment as to the ability of God. Does that sound like you're on the right track when you're making that kind of assessment? Probably not. Let's see which famous guy in the Old Testament made this mistake. Just some obscure guy named David. David put God in the box in 1 Samuel 27. Now this is the guy that fought Goliath, the, the, the huge Philistine, the giant. He said, what shall I be afraid of? I'm in the hands of the living God when he fights Goliath. But then Saul is chasing him. And in the previous couple chapters before this passage, not once but twice, David had Saul in his power. He could have killed him. Had a sword right there, cut off part of his garment to prove it one time. Just after, remember Elijah ran away just after defeating the prophets of Baal. David has this event right after releasing Saul. What's going on here? Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Fiji. No, not Fiji. The land of the Philistines. What's up with that? David, didn't he get his whole jump start in his career with killing the Philistine? Now he's going to go run and hide among the Philistines where Saul won't find him. What's going on with that? You see what, what he was doing there is he thought that God was not capable of protecting him from Saul, so he was going to go make his own plan. Heavy truth number two. God does things we can't understand. Don't make your brain, your reason, your logic, your understanding, your knowledge limit what God can do. You don't always understand what God's doing. Your perspective is far different from his. Let me give you an example. Say you, uh, you bought yourself one of those 60-inch HD TVs with 1080p, Wi-Fi, smart TV, all that stuff, right? And you're really excited about it until someone told you it was materialist. <laughs> but, 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 the, but the point of the illustration is, is not that. 
The point of the illustration is, imagine, if you will, that you were a microbe on a journey across that TV screen. You know, the 1080p, those are pixels. That's the only thing you would see as a microbe would be the pixels. What is that? Lights flashing on, black and white lights. You'd see them one at a time. You'd be walking through a maze of them, and they'd be going up and down and up, in and out, on and off. It'd be really confusing. It'd probably make you dizzy. It'd be very frustrating, and there'd be no way to navigate this desert of lights going on and off. And it'd be an impossible situation to navigate that, that, that place. Where's God? He's in the divine man cave. He's in the, the, the home theater of the universe. He's watching the movie. Not only that, he produced the movie, he directed the movie, he wrote the screenplay, and he stars in it. You're the microbe. He's watching the movie. That doesn't leave the microbe without hope. Because what can the microbe know? He can know that God is his father who loves him and he trusts God. He doesn't have the ability to comprehend everything God's doing in the universe. But with faith, he can trust God, trust that God knows, and that's the only, one, the only person who needs to know. My job is to trust him, not to have to figure it out. Amen? So heavy truth number two, God does things we can't understand. Ephesians 2.19 illustrates this. To, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That was in the passage we read also. In Philippians 4.7, in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. What's another way of saying that? Saying the opposite. Your understanding cannot limit the peace of God and your knowledge cannot limit the love of God. I just said the same thing backwards, but the same point, right? See what that means? Your knowledge cannot limit God's love. Hallelujah for that. Amen. 2 Corinthians 4.17. This is very important for, for all of us. This, this will be very helpful, I think. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So here's the, here's the thing. The, the person Paul's writing to is, is in having an affliction. And he kind of calls it temporary and light. But you're thinking, no, it's long-term and it's huge. What's the difference between the right perspective and the wrong perspective? You see, there's a couple of variables that you're not looking at. The heavenly, eternal variables. The equation is only half of an equation if you just look at the temporal, worldly part. It's not the whole equation till you add in the heavenly part. Then you can see that God's plan for you and, and, and his working in your life is good. He works everything together for good. But sometimes you've got to recognize that on the earth, it doesn't look so good. But see, you're only, you're only looking at half the equation. You guys follow what I mean by that? There's a missing variable, the eternal value variable. Here's number, number three. 
We measure God by our experiences and believe that the things that limit us limit him too. These are all related, right? Because they're all describing putting God in a box. It's not like these are four completely different sentences. They're all pretty related. But there's subtle differences between them. Here what we're talking about is the person says, I've been around the block a few times. I know what God does and what, doesn't, what he doesn't do. I don't think he's going to do that. You know, this is a person who might say, I pray it's worth a shot. In other words, this person might say, pray for stuff that might actually happen. Don't pray for stuff that's just never going to happen. That's putting God in a box, isn't it? Do people do that? They do. You know, sometimes, no, no offense, but people come and they worship God and say God is greater and stronger and they mean it sincerely, but then they get home and they forget about it. We measure God by our experiences and believe that the things that limit us limit him too. I've never seen that happen. It's not going to happen. Just because I haven't seen it happen doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. Let's look at another, see if we got another obscure, uh, unknown person in the Bible. Oh, Abraham. Abraham, the father of faith. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Look at this. Did you notice this before? Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed at God. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Didn't, God, didn't you see the prognosis? Didn't you see the doctor's report? I'm incurable. You didn't see that? See, Abraham thought he knew that in his experience that he and Sarah were not going to have a child because they'd been around the block a few times. They were savvy. They weren't gullible or naive. But they're, but they're saying to God that he can't do it because they can't do it. Because they can't do it, God can't do it. The box becomes the dimensions of your own self. What you can do is the room of the box and you stuff God into the box. So Sarah, who's 90 years old, bare child, Abraham said to God, does this kill you or what? Oh, that Ishmael might live for you. We looked at Elijah, had a problem with God in the box. David had a problem with God in the box. Now we got Abraham and Sarah too. Let's look at Sarah. Sarah said, had the same thing. Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So Sarah laughed to herself. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, I shall indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord, God said? But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. Oh, no, no, yeah, you laughed. No, I didn't laugh. No, no you laughed. You laughed. I told you this is a tone of, tone of voice version, right? Wouldn't that be cool if there really was a tone of voice version? <laughs> no, you laughed. Heavy truth number three. God is not limited by our limitations. This sounds, this is not a hard thing for me to preach. This sounds easy, right? Duh. But listen to me. We, we think things are obvious and clear and crystal clear even here sometimes in this room. 
We go back to our lives and deal with struggles with families and bosses and employees and, and the IRS and wildfires and all these things. Pretty soon we've got God in a closet in the box. Am I right? We got to keep that God is for us who can be against this attitude out there. Abe Lincoln said something. It's not really relevant to the sermon. But he said, you can fool, I think he said this, or was this Mark Twain or somebody? He says, you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Well, that sort of reminds me of this verse. Because God can do all things at all times to all sufficiency and all grace. Look what it says here. God is able to make all grace, how much grace? How much should we leave, leave back? How much does he hold back? None. So that you having all sufficiency, it's completely enough to get the job done or to solve the problem or fix it. In all things at all times. You know, in some things at all times would, would be nice for me. I'd like that. Or all things some of the time or some things all the time. I could see that. But God promises you all the things all the time. Abound means to be in, present in large numbers or in great quantity. God is able to make all grace abound to you. What's the purpose of all this? All this power, all this grace, all this everything. So that you may abound... Big quantities of lots of stuff and good works. You may abound in good works. Maybe I should put that picture on the Abraham slide. That would be kind of cool. Abraham. Okay. What it means to put God in a box, number four. Oops. You know, compared to last night, I'm making very few errors with the remote control. Okay, so here we go. We think we know ourselves better than God knows us. You know about your present. You know about your past. God knows about your future. But that's not all. He knows everything about you. And we're going to see a couple of verses for that in a minute. But now we're going to look at another Old Testament guy. You know, it says in Corinthians, these Old Testament stories are given to us as, our, as examples to us. That's what they're for. And this is how I'm using them, right? I'm illustrating a problem that we face in our Christian life. And lo and behold, it's the same things that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Elijah were dealing with too. And so when you read those history books in the Bible... Look for, look for morals and lessons and, and things to do and things not to do, okay? Look at this. Moses put, puts God in a box. Moses. Now, what's the context here? He's got 40 years in the hot sun. He's losing it. The bush is talking to him, and it's burning, and he's talking back. He's having a conversation with God two-way. And what does he say? He presumes to tell God about himself and his credentials or lack of credentials. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. But Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent 
either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. But he said, oh Lord, please send someone else. You know, the Bible is poetic and powerful. You know what God says, and I didn't have it on the slide, but you know what God says in response to this little speech? God says, who made your mouth? That's God's answer. Who made your mouth? Does God know more about his mouth than, than he does? He made it. It's just incredible that Moses would presume to think that he's telling God about himself and about his weaknesses. God knows his weaknesses. What's God have in mind? In his weakness, he's strong. It's Christ's power and his weakness. God wants the weak. God blesses the weak. The weak shall inherit. Right? Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Heavy truth number four. God knows you better than you do. So what are the four truths? God's doing all kinds of stuff you don't know about. God's capable of things that you don't understand. Your past life experiences do not limit what God can still do for you from here on. And God knows you better than you do. Look at this. This is, a, this, is a, this is an ultrasound picture, right? Jeremiah 1.5. He's talking to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God knows us from the womb. We don't even know ourselves from the womb. I don't remember any of that. Yeah, there we go. This is a cute picture here of a little boy whose pants are too big. They don't quite fit. What does it have to do with this verse? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, God knows you so well that he knows exactly how much grace to give you when and for what purpose. See? Your grace supply is custom ordered, set to your specifications. It's tailor made for you. It's not off the rack grace. It's custom grace. For you individually, he has the perfect grace for you. See, the thing about the pants, the pants just don't fit. But God's plan for you is going to fit perfectly, custom made for you. That's why, that's why these people get it all wrong. Moses got it wrong. Here's the final word of caution. God's not a Coke machine. My, my systematic theology is going to sell well, don't you think? Nice, huge. God's not a Coke machine. What do I mean by that? Of course he's not a Coke machine. We shouldn't treat God like he is a dispenser of soda upon demand. You don't just push the God button and get the thing you want. Sometimes he says, wait. Sometimes he says, no. Sometimes he says, I got something much better planned for you. Sometimes you have a problem and you want instant fix. Sometimes his answer is, I'll fix it gradually. 
If he fixes it gradually, is he still fixing it? But maybe he's teaching you something that you need to learn. That'd be one reason why he would fix you or whatever gradually, right? He might have something more important or better in store for you. Let me tell you a little story. My sister-in-law, her name is Lana, is a breast cancer survivor. She had radical mastectomy and she had chemo. She's now in remission, but she's got these periods of years, you know, where there's declining percentages of recurrence. So it's not really over yet. I saw her, and she lives in Dallas. I saw her a couple years ago when she was going through chemo. I said, Lana, how are you doing? She said, I have so many witnessing opportunities. What? You don't have any hair. She says, God's opening doors for me all over the place to minister to people. Sometimes to share the gospel with them, sometimes just to encourage a sister in Christ. She says, I'm so blessed. Let's, let's hear it from my sister-in-law. See, see, what she's, so see what she sees? She's seeing the other part of the equation. She's not just focusing on the earthly, worldly, physical, her pain, suffering part of the equation. She sees the whole equation. And she sees that God doesn't just say things. He does things when he says he works together for good. Sometimes, though, we need a little kick in our own butt to go out and do it. God is not a Coke machine. Don't give up. Look unto Jesus. If you're going through hard times, I hope this is encouraging to you. If you're not going through hard times, I hope you remember some of this stuff so you can encourage somebody else. But don't give up. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let's, what is he saying about Christians here? He's saying two things. You got burdens and you got sins. Burdens and sins. He says, let us lay them aside. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Author means he started it. He started your faith. Finisher means he's going to be there with you at, at the end with your faith perfected when you're with the Lord. Cast your burdens and your sins. Keep your eyes on who? Jesus. Wait, there was one more, wasn't it? There was one more. Ah. There we go. Finally, Jude 124. God's plan for you will succeed. It's even better than the men's warehouse guarantee. <laughs> now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, who prevents you from stumbling? Jesus, not you. Who's going to present you blameless? Jesus, not you. He's going to do it for you. What do you got to do? You got to run and keep your eye on Jesus. It's his job to keep you from stumbling and to make sure you get it all the way to the end. There's a verse in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
I want you to notice something about that verse that's very important. The cleansing comes after the forgiveness. He doesn't ask you to cleanse yourself and then go to church. He asks you to confess your sins, he forgives you, and he cleanses you. Is that awesome? Thank God it's that way, isn't it? We would just be out there in the mud and the mire otherwise, wouldn't we? 